Welcome to Bookends, a virtual book club brought to you by The Team Approach. I'm your host, Susan Stamm, and this first week in December has been designated as Employee Learning Week by the American Society of Training and Development. To celebrate Employee Learning Week, I am pleased to welcome back Dan Tobin to the program today. Dan has written Learn Your Way to Success, which is published by McGraw-Hill and is just entering bookstores as we have our interview today, just, just been published and just released. To get a copy of Learn Your Way to Success, visit www.whatdidyoulearnatworktoday.com. You can access today's podcast and previous bookends programs, including an earlier interview with Dan Tobin discussing his book, Feeding Your Leadership Pipeline at bookendsbookclub.net. Be sure you visit our Bookends resource blog for free chapters and resources provided by our guests. For today's interview, you'll also find worksheets that we'll be discussing to create your learning plan. Welcome back to the program, Dan Tobin. Thank you, Susan. It's a pleasure <laughs> to be here. It's great, great to have this chance to, uh, to visit with you today on this important week, Employee Learning Week. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about uh, you know, your experiences or, or your thinking that led you to write this book. Well, I've been in the training and development field for more than 30 years. And one of the things that, that I've noticed over my career is that uh, people have many opportunities to learn at work every day. Besides going to a training program, besides um, uh, taking an e-learning program, there are, there are opportunities every single day that you're at work to learn something. And that most people don't take, a, take full advantage of those learning opportunities. So Learn Your Way to Success is my take on how people can maximize their learning opportunities at work every single day in order to improve their job performance and to accelerate their career growth. That's great, and, and I, would, I would agree that you have accomplished that objective. Tell us why it's so important for learners to take personal responsibility for their learning. And what's this look like when they do this? Okay, well, you know, many companies uh, in the past could promise you, could promise an employee that, you know, unless they really messed up or unless they did something illegal, that they would be, they could have a job at that company forever. You know, automakers used to be able to make that promise. Uh, a lot of computer companies used to make that promise. The, the U.S. Postal Service would make that promise. You know, that if you started with them right out of school, that you would never have to look for another job. Well, in today's economy, that's no longer true. Not only is there really no uh, job security anymore, because of the recession, because of the economic downturn, even the, the one or more weeks of training that many companies have promised their employees in the past have been reduced. Unfortunately, when, when times get bad in the company, training and development is often one of the first things to get chopped from the budget. But that doesn't mean that people can't learn. Every day at work, 
you have opportunities to learn, and that's what the book is about, how to identify those learning opportunities and how to take advantage of those learning opportunities, both to do a better job at what you're doing and to plan your career. And, and they're certainly all around us. We just have to be aware of them and tap into them. And, and you offer a great tool to get us started on this learning journey, and you call it the knowledge and awareness model. Can you give us an overview of this and explain how to use the first worksheet in your book to help us get a big picture of our skill and our needs? Okay, well, for every person, for any person, there are certain competencies, skills, and knowledge that you have. And there are other ones that you don't have. There are also, there's a level of awareness of what skills and knowledge that you have, what competencies you have. And there are other competencies that you don't even know you need. So this forms a two-by-two two matrix. And in the, in the top left quadrant, and I believe that in the uh, attachments to this, we have a copy of that matrix that you sent out, Susan. Yes. Mm -hmm. In the first quadrant, you have the knowledge and the skills of which you're aware. Okay? You know what you know. In the second quadrant, there may be knowledge and skills that you have, but of which you're unaware. And these are, you know, the, the, the way you express that is I don't know what I know. These are, I call your hidden assets. Okay, they're things that, you know, somebody may say to you, gee, I heard you handle that call with a customer, and you were really good, you know, the, the getting, getting past that customer's complaint, solving the problem. And you may just have thought that's what you do. You know, you didn't recognize it as a particular skill or competency. So that's a hidden asset. In the third quadrant, there are things that you don't know. And you may be aware of it, okay? You know, I, I know what I don't know. I know the skills and the knowledge I need to, to get in order to do a better job or in order to make that move up the career ladder in my company. And then in the fourth quadrant are the things that you don't know, the skills and knowledge you lack, of which you're unaware. And these are your blind spots, okay? Somebody may, your boss may say to you, um, you know, you really need to have this set of skills in order to do a good job and you've never heard of them before, okay? So it's a blind spot. So through the methods in the book, in the first couple of chapters of the book, there's a way of working with your manager in order to identify the skills and the knowledge, the competencies that, you, that belong in each of these four boxes, okay? And the way you can start out, and there's a worksheet that, that, was distrib that Susan distributed, is to sit down by yourself with this chart, and on the chart to list the skills and knowledge, the competencies that you feel are necessary for the job. 
and then for each one of them to rate yourself on, you know, from lacking that competency to being an expert at that competency. And also for each one of those competencies to list how important you think that is for the job. Now, once you've completed your list, you should give a copy of the same form, a blank form, to your manager. And let your manager fill it out with you in mind. What are the competencies that you have and how important is each of those competencies to the job? I'm sorry, I misspoke just slightly. What are the competencies you have and what are the competencies that are needed for the job from the manager's point of view? Now, your real learning comes when you sit down and you compare your list with your manager's list. And there may be some surprises in here, both pleasant surprises and unpleasant surprises. Mm. The pleasant surprises come when your manager rates you higher on a competency than you rated yourself or list the competency you hadn't even thought of and says, you know, they're very good at that. The unpleasant surprises come when your manager rates you much lower on a competency than you rated yourself. So either you're not displaying the competency or your manager feels that what you think is adequate isn't really adequate and you have to do some more work on that competency. So by creating these lists, you can make a list of those competencies that you need to develop. And the list might be quite long, but then you need to look at that list and prioritize it according to which of those competencies are most important to the job you're doing today. And when you're done with that, what you have is you have a prioritized learning agenda for yourself. It's a great, great process, really powerful process. And let me just ask you this. We talked, you talked about, you know, sometimes you're going to have some surprises. They could be good or bad. You know, the manager may rate you lower than your self-rating. The, the manager may rate you higher than your self-rating. Do you ever see the manager also add additional items, perhaps, that maybe you've not even put on your chart? Absolutely. Those are, those are the ones that fall into that category of being your blind spots. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, okay. so, so, you know, the things that you didn't even know you needed, mm -hmm. which the manager thinks are necessary for you to do a really good job. So you end up with this really complete list and your perceptions, your perceptions and your, your manager's perceptions. After um, rating ourselves and, and, and getting the ratings from our manager, what happens next? Well, then you come up with your list, you know, your list of priority items. Then you can sit down with your manager and talk about how can I develop these things. It might be going to a training program. It might be... Uh, doing some self-study. It might be that the manager says, let me coach you on this. Or it might be that the manager finds somebody else in the group who already has that competency and asks them to be your coach or your teacher to guide you through. Well, your, your book is filled with great ideas on how to leverage various informal learning opportunities. In fact, you know, most of the content of the book is focused on the more 
uh, informal uh, learning opportunities. But before we get into that, um, could we look for a little bit at the formal learning events? Because I believe, and I think you do too, Dan, that far too often these kinds of learning opportunities really don't produce a transfer of that learning back to the job. Could you talk a little bit about what a learner can do before, during, and after a formal learning opportunity to get the most from these experiences? Absolutely. Um, and, I, you know, I've been in the training business for a long time, and uh, these are my conclusions from my experience. First, before you go to a training program, let's say your manager tells you there's a training program coming up in the company, I want you to sign up for it. What you should do is you should sit down and look at the description of that training and the objectives of that training, and then sit down with your manager and before the class and discuss first, why are you sending me to this training? What is it that you want me to learn and do differently after I come back from this training. Okay. Going over the course outline and objectives, are some of those more important for me than others? So which ones are the most important? And then finally, what do you expect me to do differently after I come back from the training? Okay, so this sets up your learning agenda for that training program. And when you go into the classroom, which is, you need to focus on the training, okay? You can't, you can't be doing your job and really focus on the training at the same time. Talk to the manager about, you know, can somebody cover for me while I'm away at the training, whether it's a half or a week-long program. Can somebody else answer my phone or answer my email, or can I forward my phone to someone else so that you can really focus on what's being delivered and what you're supposed to be able to learn? When you get back from the training, within a few days, you just sit down with your manager again. Okay, let's go through the course outline again and the objectives and what you said was the most important. This is what I learned. Okay, these are some things that weren't covered very well in the course. You know, can you help me with these? Because you said they were important. Before I went to the training, you said you wanted me to apply what I learned to my job. Exactly how should we do that? And if I have problems or questions as I'm trying to apply my new learning to the work, can you help me? Or is there somebody else who can help me in the group who has already mastered this, this competency? And then to have to set up an agenda, you know, a, a timeline of this is how I'm going to apply what I learned over this period of time, and then follow it up with, with some reinforcement meetings with your manager, you know, every week or every month until you've mastered that new competency. Too often, People go to a training program, they come back to work, uh, they try to apply what they learned. Suddenly there's a question. You know, I thought I understood this in class. 
now that I'm trying to do it, I really don't understand it. Where are you going to get help? Okay? That's the agreement you have to have with your manager to help you, to reinforce, and to get questions answered as you try to apply your new knowledge and skills. This is really important information that you've just shared, and I was so glad to see that you included um, information about, you know, a transfer of learning back to the workplace. In your experience, Dan, because you mentioned, you know, you, you have been in the learning industry for, you know, a number of years, and in your experience, do you see these kinds of things that you've just been describing? I mean, do you find organizations are using these I would call them best practices, uh, or, or is it more rare that you see organizations use these kinds of things you're talking about? I think it's relatively rare, to tell you the truth. Um, but I think that, you, you know, I, as a training professional, this is something that I've tried to do throughout my career. Mm -hmm. And the way, as a training professional, you can help this is to send a reminder to the employee's manager and to the employee you know, a, a couple of weeks before the training and say you should be having these conversations before the employee goes off to the training and mm -hmm. after the employee comes back from the training. That That's certainly great. can help. And we also should be, you know, when we train managers on developing their employees, this is part of the manager's job or should be. It should be part of that training. Well, well, more and more learning today, as we both know, is being delivered through, um, you know, some sort of e-learning kind of format. Um, and I, I would think that the things that you've just talked about would certainly apply there as well. Um, but let's uh, talk a little bit about some of the misperceptions about e-learning. Um, that could sabotage its success and, and how organizations and individuals can experience greater learning results with e-learning. What are your thoughts about this? Yeah, well, a couple of my pet peeves, I guess, are that, you know, there are many companies out there and individuals who, who have gone out to, you know, lots of potential customers and said, we can take your two-day or a three-day or five-day um, classroom instructor-led program and convert it to e-learning. Hmm. The problem is that in most cases when a company does this, it makes the assumption that employees no longer need any time to take the learning. Right. Okay? You know, if they were sending them to a class for three days, well, they know that's three days they're not going to be on the job and they're supposed to focus on learning. But now that it's e-learning, they say, well, you know, you can multitask. You know, <laughs> just do it in your spare time. And what happens then is that if people try to multitask, basically they find themselves paging through the e-learning the e screens and um, not really learning anything. So the same thing about having that focus. You need to have the same focus on e-learning that you have when you go to a classroom. You need to shut off your phone. You need to shut off your email notifications. And you need to focus on what you're learning. And you need to have the same agreement with your manager before you start the program and the same follow-up with your manager after you complete the program if you really want to make e-learning stick. 
and yeah. have it result in a better job performance. Do you ever get the feeling, Dan, you know, with e-learning and, and it's become so very popular that that sometimes um, it's almost looked at as a silver bullet. I mean, here's a way that we can do get people to learn. Um, it's not going to take any time. It's not going to. It's going to cost less um, than traditional classroom learning. We don't have to send people away and travel and all of that. And um, you know, it's just this almost magical. Organizations are kind of looking at it as the silver bullet. Is is that? you know, what you're seeing out there with e-learning? I've seen a lot of that, and the fact is it isn't the silver bullet. I mean, the, you, if you want people to learn, they need to focus on learning, whether mm-hmm. it's in the classroom or with e-learning. Yes, it saves, saves companies money, but does it really result in learning? And, of course, as you said earlier, all of the same transfer of learning ideas that you shared would be um, applicable here as well. You know, the meeting with the manager before, the meeting with the manager after, of course, providing the time. Um, you know, but I think that manager is so key and, and just having them focus on people as learners, and it kind of creates that expectation and, and um, really frames the whole learning event in a much more powerful way. Uh, absolutely. Well, let's talk about the manager a little bit more. Um, you were talking about the manager earlier as being the key to helping the direct report learn. Uh, in your book, you talk about asking the manager directly for help as a key informal learning strategy, just going directly to the manager and asking them to help you. Describe some of the typical ways that the manager might respond to such a request and how their response can impact learning on their team. Okay, well, you know, what happens when you have a problem or a situation you haven't faced before? You know, you go to your manager and you ask for help. And your manager can answer your question in one of five ways. Number one, don't bother me. Go figure it out yourself. That's not going to help you learn. Number two, leave it with me and I'll take care of it. Now, a lot of managers will say that because they know they can get it done faster than explaining to you how to, how to do it yourself. Number three, here's the solution, okay? You have a problem, I have the solution, go do it. Number four, they could say, let me show you how to do that. And number five, what do you think you should do? Which is really a coaching question. So what do you do if your manager gives you one of the first three answers? You know, don't bother me, go figure it out on your own, leave it with me and I'll take care of it or here's the solution. Well, a good manager is gonna take the time to help you learn. Your job performance is never going to improve unless you learn to analyze and solve problems for yourself. So if the manager happens to be very busy, which may, you know, at that moment that you ask the question, which may spark one of those three answers, you should go back to the manager when, when he or she isn't so busy and say something like, you know, I appreciate you're taking, you know, taking this off my hands or telling me what I need to do, but could you take a few minutes to explain to me how you think about a problem or a situation like this and how you came to this solution? So 
know that if I face a similar problem or, or situation in the future, I'll be able to handle it myself. You know, the good manager will, will find or make the time to help you learn. Your job performance is never going to improve unless you learn to analyze and solve those problems yourself. The best answer here is number four. Let me show you how to do that. that that's, you know, a teaching moment. Mm -hmm. That's when the manager takes the time to teach you. Or number five, what do you think you should do? which is a coaching question, helping you come up with the answer yourself through some guided questions. I, I, I wonder, you know, um, the questions, one, the answers, the, uh, the uh, ways that managers respond to this, the first three that you mentioned, um, you know, in organizations that put a high priority on learning and kind of describe this as, this is part of your role as a manager in our organization, of a, as a leader in our organization. That one of your um, one of the aspects of your job that we we uh, hold very valuable in our organization is that you will help people learn, because learning is what makes us the best organization that we can be. Um, it'd be interesting to actually see some research on those five potential answers. Dan, maybe in your next book, <laughs> um, you know, uh, how often do employees encounter those answers and how does that correlate to uh, the organization itself and sort of their value on learning and their emphasis on learning as a responsibility for people who are in leadership roles? Absolutely. I could write that book with you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's uh, uh, talk a little bit about this idea of thinking outside of the box. Uh, you quote Peter Vail, the professor of management at Anatoc University, who uh, said, learning is a willingness to let one's ability and attitude change in response to new ideas, information, and experiences. Organizational policy and rules, um, I believe, can prevent this from occurring. Could you share an example and tell us how we can get better at imagining and exploring alternatives? Yeah, well, thinking outside the box is probably one of the most overused expressions in business today and has been for a while. And uh, if, if the listeners, you know, don't know the origin of that, it comes from a, um, an exercise where you arrange nine dots in three rows. And then you're supposed to take your, your pencil and try to, drive, to draw four line segments that will go through all nine dots without uh, lifting the pencil from the paper, without uh, retracing any of, the, any of the previous line segments. And the solution to that problem requires you, well, let me go back. When you draw those nine dots, it looks like a square. And most people who look at that square work on the assumption that it forms a box and you can't go outside the dimensions of the box. In order to solve the problem, you have to draw two of those line segments 
that go beyond the boundaries of the box. And that's that exercise is what um, originated the 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 phrase thinking outside the box. So we all have personal biases based on life experience, based on work experience. We work under assumptions that. You know, we assume this is the way the company works or this is the way our manager works or constraints that we believe are in place that limit our, our thinking and our work. Thinking, inside, thinking outside the box requires critical thinking skills. And what critical thinking skills are is questioning of assumptions and making explicit the, the assumptions and the constraints and the biases under which we're working. You know, for example, I, most of the listeners probably aren't old enough to remember that in the 1950s or the 19s, even into the early 1960s, if you picked up a piece of merchandise that had a, a label on it that said made in Japan, it meant that it was absolute junk, mm. had mm -hmm. no value, poor workmanship, poor quality. Well, today, <laughs> that assumption, you know, if you grew up with that experience and carried that bias through your life, you, the bias just isn't true today. Mm -hmm. That you know, most of our electronics, many of our cars, most in most of our car components, if they weren't made in Japan, they were designed in Japan, and they're, you know, of very high quality. Unless you examine what your biases and your constraints and your assumptions are, it's going to limit your thinking and limit the, your creativity. So. You know, for example, the example that Susan's referring to is one of my first jobs, uh, which is a curriculum manager for a product line at a major computer company that no longer exists, but it was a very major computer company at the time. And uh, in that job, I was responsible to identify the training needed for software support specialists in the field. And one of the needs that I came up with doing my needs assessment was to teach our employees, this company's employees, about a competitor's products. Because first of all, we had to compete against this competitor. So we needed to understand what they were selling as well as what we were selling. And secondly, we were selling our own products that worked with this other company's products. So if we didn't understand how the other company's products work, we couldn't explain how our complementary products worked. I went to the development group within the company that developed all of the training, and I said, we need to do this training. And they said, it's company policy that we never do training on our competitors' products. <laughs> and I said, you know, the field really need, the people in the field really need this training. And they said, 
we don't do training on competitors' products. So I, what I ended up doing was hiring an, an outside um, uh, trainer who knew the, this other company's products, who did training on this other company's products, and I brought that person in to train, you know, a number of our people in a two-day pro, very good two-day program. And then I worked with the product managers and engineers to add a third day to the program to explain to our employees our own products and how they work with the complementary products from this other company. The company had this policy. It was a constraint on what I could do. Um, if I hadn't questioned that constraint, I never would have been able to get this done. And the program, by all measures, was, it was a great success. It increased not only our success rate in competing against this, this uh, larger company, but also in selling more of our complementary products. So I had to identify what those constraints were, make them explicit before I could find a way to get around those constraints. It's a great story. It's a great example. And, uh, you know, uh, this whole idea of rules and policies, I think, sometimes hurt organizations more than they, than they help. Um, and, and I'd like to just go a little further uh, with that kind of thinking and talk a little bit about the, the whole idea of experimentation, which you do a great job in the book talking about experimentation and you know, how it's responsible for much of, of course, what we take for granted in our world today, uh, everything from uh, light bulbs to post-it notes. Um, how can we design experiments to improve our work methods? Well, you know, in scientific fields, there's a whole field called design of experiments. It has to do with statistics. Um, and if you're in a scientific field, you've been trained on that, and you, you have to follow those, those uh, rules for the design of experiments. But we experiment every day at work, okay? We have following procedures. And we think, you know, if I, if I change this procedure, maybe if I reverse steps two and three in my work process, I can get things done faster or more efficiently, or I can improve quality. So basically, you have to form a hypothesis. You know, I think that if I do this thing differently, or if I add a step in here, or if I try this different material, I think that I can either, you know, reduce cost, improve efficiency, or improve quality, or reduce scrap, you know, whatever your, your hypothesis is. Once you form the hypothesis, you should sit down with your group and with your manager to discuss the hypothesis, okay? Maybe somebody's already tried that and found out it didn't work, or maybe somebody has a, a complementary idea that will improve your hypothesis. Once you, once you come up with what is the hypothesis you want to test, then you need to design an experiment, okay? You think that if you reverse steps two and three or if you try using this other material, you're going to come up with a better result than, say, for one week or whatever the time period is, I'm going to reverse this 
these steps or I'm going to try this new material and we'll see what happens. Again, review the design with your manager. Get approval to do this ahead of time. Then conduct the experiment and record your results. At the end of your, your experimental period, review the results with your manager or with your group and see if there's something, you know, what did you learn from that? Maybe you learned that that really does work well. Or maybe you learned that, no, that didn't work well, so you're warning other people not to try the same thing. Or maybe as you were conducting the experiment, you had another idea. You know, that if you tweak this one other piece of the process in a, in a slightly different way, it would make things even better. And then share your findings with your manager and your group. And then figure out what it is you want to keep and what it is you want to throw out. You know, there's a famous story on post-it notes that I tell in the, in the book. Basically, there was an employee at the 3M company who was trying to come up with a, develop a, a new strong adhesive. And what happened in one of his experiments is that he found not only was the adhesive very weak, but you could, if you put it on a piece of paper and put the piece of paper onto something, it would stay there, but it would come off with just a little tug on the paper. And in terms of his goal, which was to, to create a very strong adhesive, this was a failure. So he reported the results in his he made you know in his lab notebook and let people know about them, but it went down as a failure and he went on to try other experiments. Well, it turned out that some years later, another employee in the group uh, sang in his church's choir, and in the hymnal from which he was working, he used to put in slips of paper to keep trying you know to keep places of where the various hymns were. But the pieces of paper often fell out and, you know, it took him time to find the place again. And then he remembered this other guy's experiment. And he tried, he got some of that, that very weak adhesive and he put it on some pieces of paper and he put those into his hymnal and because there was, you know, some adhesiveness there, they stayed in place. But he could also, after the, after the service of the concert, he could just easily take them out and he hadn't done any harm to anything. This was the, this was the uh, advent of post-it notes. And even after this person discovered that use for it, they weren't, the company wasn't convinced this was going to be, you know, a viable product. So what they did is they made up some, some pads of post-it notes and they distributed to people throughout the company and said, see if you can make some use out of this. And we all know that post-it notes are probably one of the, the most useful office products that has come along in a long time. Uh, and I believe that 3M now has, I forget whether it's 4,000 or 5,000 uh, products based on that weak adhesive. And it all came from a failed experiment. Such a great story. I love that story. And, 
it's sad uh, when you hear a story like that that you consider that there's still organizations out there that you know won't permit people to experiment um, and in fact you share a personal example in the book about your very first job um, at a high-tech firm could you tell us a little bit about your experience and offer any counsel for people who might find themselves in similar situations? Sure. Um, in, in that computer company that I worked for, I'd been given the job to uh, look at how we train sales and sales support specialists for a, a new product line, a, a local area networking. Um, I went out and I did all of my needs assessments. I talked with, you know, the people in the field. I talked with product managers and engineers and support groups and everybody else I could think of. And I came up with a model for how we could be doing this training. The problem was that the, mod, the, the company's educational services arm, which is a very big organization, had been developing and delivering training the same way for 20 years. <laughs> and this model just, their model wasn't going to work for the networking space that I was responsible for. So I went to my managers in, in educational services and I said, here's what we need to do. And they said, that's not the way we do things. <laughs> and I said, well, the way you do things, we've been doing things for 20 years, isn't going to meet the needs of this market. And they said, that's not the way we do things. And no matter how many arguments I came up with, they were sticking to their guns. They had a five-inch notebook that contained all of their standards for training programs, oh, everything from how to write a needs assessment question to what fonts to use for student materials. <laughs> and that was the Bible, and nobody was going to question the Bible. And I got very frustrated, and what I did is I went to the head of the marketing group for this product line, who was new to the company, and I showed him my plans. And he said, that's fantastic, go do it. And I said, well, I've got a problem, and I explained the problem to him. And uh, he did what I was positioning him to do, he picked up the phone, called my boss in educational services, and hired me. <laughs> and uh, I did the program the way I wanted to do it, but it wasn't part of the educational services offerings. It was part of the marketing group's offerings. And uh, I'll tell you that to this day, 30 years later, uh, there were still people from, you know, who worked in that old group who haven't forgiven me for succeeding. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I actually had an experience where I was applying for a job through a headhunter, and uh, this is a few years ago, and I uh, had a great conversation with a headhunter, and he said, well, I'm going to present, you know, present your, your credentials to uh, the head of training in this company because I think huh. you're the right person for the job. And he called me back the next day, and he told me who the manager was. <laughs> and the manager said, you know, he has a lot to answer for, for, you know, for what he did at, at this company. Oh, my. Even I, though I it worked. Answer what he could tell the, the manager to do with his job. Oh. 
But, oh you know, that, that's uh, water under the bridge. Yeah, I like to say bridge under the water. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness gracious. Well, um, in your book, another thing that I just really liked, it really caught my eye, was where you talk about um, this phrase you call uh, being a smart dummy. Uh, I just loved uh, that um, that phrase and uh, what it represented. Please uh, explain this for us and talk about how we can leverage this great idea. Okay. Well, um, I, I wish I could take credit for the phrase, but some years ago I, I was interviewing a senior executive from a consumer goods company, and he told me that whenever he put together a problem-solving team, he always included in its membership a smart dummy. Hmm. And that's a contradiction in terms. So I asked him what it meant. He said a smart dummy is a very bright individual who has no background or experience with the problem being studied. It's someone who can ask the naive questions that the more experienced people are afraid to ask. So I asked him for an example, and, and here's what he told me. He had assembled a team to find ways of reducing the company's freight costs. Those costs ran the company tens of millions of dollars a year. Most of the members of the team were from the company's logistics and finance operations. The smart dummy was from a totally different part of the organization. He had no background in terms of, of shipping costs or logistics. Well, in one of the team meetings, the smart dummy asked, he says, how do we know that we're getting the lowest shipping rates from our vendors? Hmm. And the head of logistics replied, you know, giving him a dirty look, said, we know because we get the rates we're charged are below their published rates. And the smart dummy followed up with, well, have we ever asked the vendors if they can give us any additional discounts? <laughs> well, when the company called the various freight vendors and asked for a larger discount, they were immediately given additional discounts of from 3 to 5% by the various vendors, saving the company several million dollars a year. Mm -mm. Without the smart dummy on the team, the people in charge of logistics would never have asked for the additional discounts. Yeah. And, you know, psychologist Abraham Maslow, you know, once said, I've learned that the novice can often see things that the expert overlooks. Hmm. All that's necessary is not to be afraid of making mistakes or of appearing naive. Yeah. So there's great. a whole section in, in the book on asking questions. You know, it's a major learning method, and it's one that we use or should be using every single day at work. Great stuff there. I'd like to shift gears a little bit. Uh, I'd just uh, like to highlight or ask you if you would highlight how we can leverage opportunities when we're given opportunities to attend conferences and trade shows. How can we get the most out of the time and investment in these kinds of events? Well, you know, it's, this is something that I probably it struck me about 20 years ago when I was speaking at one of Elliot Maisie's uh, tech learning conferences. And I was doing a, a breakout session on, on knowledge management and knowledge sharing. And just before my breakout session, there was a general session speaker that everybody went to hear. The guy was a futurist, and he was absolutely terrific. 
So in the next session, I had probably two or 300 people in the room. And uh, I started out by saying, you know, how did people enjoy so-and-so? And everybody said he was really great. So I asked the next question was, how many of you think that he had some valuable material, not just for you, but that some of his ideas and the material he presented on trends would be valuable to your chief executive officer or other executives in your company? And virtually every hand went up. So then I said, how many of you are planning to buy a copy of this guy's book <laughs> or the recording of his session and give it to your CEO. And of the two or 300 people in the room, two hands went up. Oh, no. <laughs> and, you know, I realized that people, including myself, uh, just didn't get as much learning and the companies that they represented who sent them and spent the money to send them to these conferences didn't get even a fraction of the learning they could potentially get from attending a conference. So some years ago, I wrote an article uh, about this, and the, it's pretty much in the book. And basically what I'm saying is the same kind of planning that I talked about earlier for going to any kind of training program whether it's a classroom instructor-led program or an e-learning program, should be used in going to a conference. You know, most people don't really settle on which sessions they're going to attend to the conference until they get there and they mm -hmm. get the final program and they sit down, the, you know, the night before it starts and go through and circle which sessions they want to, to, to attend. Well. Today, most of these agendas are online several weeks or a month ahead of the program. So what I propose is that you sit down a few weeks ahead of the program and you pick up which sessions are going to be most relevant to you. And for each one of those sessions, and I provide in the book a, a, a session planning worksheet, you write down what are the questions you want to get answered. And you bring that with you to the conference. And as you, as the speakers answer those questions, you write down the answers. And if at the end of the presentation they haven't answered all those questions, you get a ready list for the Q&A segment. And if you can't get all of them answered there, well, follow up with the speaker. You know, most of the speakers in their handouts will have their email address. Or you can try and, you know, ask the speaker the lunch or dinner during the conference and see if you can get those answers. Another idea is let's say that you're going to the conference and there's a topic which isn't on the agenda, but you'd really like to learn from some other people. You know, maybe there are other people attending the conference who have some experience that could be valuable to you. Well, it doesn't cost you or the sponsor of the conference anything at all for you to go to the sponsor or the MC for the conference and say, 
you know, I'd really like to find some people who are interested in this topic. And before we have the, the sit-down luncheon today, could you make an announcement that, you know, uh, and designate a table, let's say table six, and just make an announcement to anyone who's interested in this topic or has some experience in it, could they please sit at table six to discuss it with, with others? Great idea. Okay, doesn't cost the conference one cent, doesn't cost you anything, and you have an opportunity to learn from the other people at the conference. You know, and there are a bunch of other tips in there also. I mean, have you ever gone to a conference, and at the end of the day you find your pocket or your pocketbook full of business cards that you collected <laughs> from other people? Yeah. And you look at them, and you don't remember why you have them. <laughs> you know, or you save them all up to you're on the plane going back, and you get this stack of 20 or 30 business cards, and you have no idea, you can't remember who the people are, your common interests were, you know, why you got their card or gave them yours. Well, when you exchange cards with somebody at a conference, take a minute to write on the back of the card what it is you have in common, where you met them, how you're going to help each other, and how you're going to follow up. A very simple thing, doesn't take much time, can save a lot of confusion. Excellent tip. And there are, you know, there are 20 other tips in that chapter. You've just done an absolutely outstanding job in, in providing some great information for us today uh, on this whole topic of learning, which is absolutely key to any organization's success. And, Dan, I want to thank you again for sharing your expertise with us today and remind folks that your book will be available probably as early as tomorrow or um Later this week, uh, Dan has just received his first personal copy of the book. So the book has now uh, been released and is hitting the bookshelves and book, your favorite bookseller. If you would like to order a copy of the book directly from Dan, you can visit his brand new website for this book, which is www. What did you learn at worktoday.com? Or, of course, you can go to your favorite bookseller. All of the, our podcasts can be found on bookendsbookclub.net. And Bookends, of course, is brought to you by the team approach. Our producer is John David Bowman. I'm Susan Sam, and I want to thank you for listening today. Mm-hmm.